0: Welcome. You're listening to Women's Health and Beyond with Dr. David Goslin, the only podcast for women providing a physician's point of view on everything relating to women's health, sexual medicine, and cosmetic gynecology. Get ready to discover the latest and hottest topics in women's health and how they relate to you. Hey, friends, this is Dr. David Goslin for another episode of Women's Health and Beyond. Today, you guys, we have a special guest. I know I say that every week, but this is a really special guest. He's a good friend of mine. He actually trained at Cedar Sinai Hospital when I was an attending there, and he's gone on to do some really great things, and he, I think he has so much to share with us. I'd like to introduce to this podcast Dr. Edward Tannghanob. And uh, Ed, are you on the phone? I'm here. Don't Thanks forget. For having every- me. Oh, my pleasure. I know you have a spectacular academic pedigree but i want you to tell us about it because i don't want to butcher it or, or or do you discredit but tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what schools you've attended and and then we'll get into what you're doing today sure i'd be, I'd be
1: happy to and and again thanks for for having me on the show um i grew up in glendora california and it, it's a small town just outside of la proper but my journey really started there. You know, my, my father's a, an Obi gyn much like yourself. And that's kind of the, the life I grew up with. I, I grew up around when it's health, you know, babies were always the topic of conversation around the dinner table. And, and I always knew some part of me um, was drawn to medicine. I, I just really didn't know which direction and, and in which way when I was 17, I had the opportunity to actually leave California. I didn't think that was ever going to happen. I mean, who would ever want to leave sunny California? Uh, But I was accepted into a um, a very unique program at the time, probably not so unique now, but it was called the engineering medical program. So I ended up going to to Tufts. So you can imagine as a 17 year old, I, I basically signed away eight years of my life, you know, most kids, I would say nowadays at 17, it's, there's so many options out there. And, and, and I think the thought of, of committing to something like that so early on, you know, I, I don't know if I would have necessarily done it uh, again, but but that's what I did. And it was a combination of, of um, electrical and biomedical engineering and, and medical school. So at a very young age, uh, at 17, I, I left California um, and, and I went to Boston. I was at Tufts University. I was there for, for a total of eight years. And about eight years in, into the program, I, I discovered uh, my, my first love, um, which I actually expressed to you when, when I was at Cedars. And, you know, I, I try to find the, the intersection or, or the cross between engineering, technology, and medicine. And I remember one night, uh, late at night, when when YouTube, uh, that was just beginning. Oh, my gosh, I guess I'm dating myself now. And I remember watching the very first televised robotic hysterectomy on YouTube This world televised. I still remember uh, He still very much is the, the Michael Jordan, of my life, uh, Dr. Dr. Um, Arnold and, and And at that time I remember seeing that and being absolutely amazed that that technology and science and, and medicine had finally kind of made its intersection. And, and I knew at that moment that I, I wanted to be a robotic surgeon. So I ended up um, traveling back, actually, to California. I was, I was very fortunate to match at, at Cedar Sinai, uh, where I did my OBGYN residency, and, and I actually met you. I remember training under you as, as, as your resident and joining you as many cases as I could, scrubbing in, performing minimally invasive surgeries, hysterectomies, and, and basically really learning what it was like to be an OBGYN and, and always thinking on, on the cutting edge. Um, after my time at, at Cedars, I, I went on to do a robotic and urogynecologic fellowship at Scripps Clinic uh, in San Diego. And at the time it was really interesting. I, I, I got a taste of, of research and we were actually the active study arm for Boston Scientific. And I don't know if you remember this or not, uh, but but the Solix sling, a very, very small, light uh, footprint sling to, to help women with, with urinary incontinence. And so, armed with my new knowledge and skill set with robotic surgery and and pelvic reconstruction. I set out to to save the world, uh, one robot at the time, and I was actually recruited back home. And I was so lucky um, that the town I grew up in, you know, the community hospital had just purchased the Da Vinci uh, robot and they needed a medical director to build the program, so I ended up coming home. And I remember one of the first cases I did, uh, as a attending at this time, my father was, was assisting me. It was a, uh, I still remember, it was a moderately large uterus. And, and I remember just working with him side by side. And, and the feeling I had, you know, of operating with, with my father really brought it all full circle. So that's kind of how I, I got my start in, in, in my career. Um, it, it's been a very uh, interesting path so far. And in the entire way, I, I always knew that whatever I saw in my pathway, whether it's robotic surgery or how to perform a million basis surgery, I always started with why, why are we doing this? And I eventually knew that if I could get to the core why, I could figure out how to do better. So that, that's kind of how I've, I've gone through my professional career so far.
0: So interesting. Uh, I mean, you and I have so much in common, it's so funny you know, both our dads were OBGYNs. And I think you and I shared a very similar bond in that regard because we both work with our dads today um, and Absolutely. God bless them. And, and, and like you said, I think we've been exposed to women's health. And so when people ask me, why did you become a GYN? It, it was almost a natural evolution to who I became just because I was so influenced by external factors growing up. And actually, I didn't want to be an OBGYN. I don't know how you felt, because my dad was doing a lot of deliveries at the time. True. And I remember so many dinners would be missed or, or leaving in the middle or having to wait for him in the parking lot while he finished the delivery. So we could so all go many, out to dinner, right? So
1: many, so and, many
0: missed dinners, yeah. And, and as, as I was doing my rotations through medical school, I was really attracted to urology and plastics. And then I realized that I could have a little bit of all of that in, in women's health. And you and I are going to talk about it today, but I think you bring such a unique approach because one you, you nailed, it. and I was going to use this same word, technology and medicine are at a unique intersection today. And I think you're so well equipped for that, that you're really showing and branching out in ways that are outstanding for women's health. And, and you're really a champion And trying to push the envelope. And we talked about so many things that you and I do that really push that envelope. And I even told you we could probably spend hours talking just you and I about every single procedure we do. Because we do so many things in common. But you do something that's really unique. And you call it your timeless intimacy. And I think it's something my audience is going to love to hear about. Because I think anything that you and I do, we believe in hybrid therapies and I really think that's the new approach even in laser vaginal therapy and I know you're really big in the alma world as a fractional co2 speaker but I've really have come to sort of combine energies when I'm doing vaginal reconstruction or vaginal rejuvenation whether it's fractional co2 or rf I I think there's a synergy in combining them so tell us about timeless intimacy what it is how you came up with it, and then I'm sure the conversation's gonna go on many different tangents from there. Sure, um, well, I, I think first
1: and foremost, you know, my, my approach to you know, old problems, I mean, who does not experience some form of disperse or painful intimacy as they enter their menopause years? I, I know that when I joined my father, I, I walked almost into an anti-aging practice most of the patients, you know, who are, you know, long-term supporters of the practice and and patients, you know, had already delivered two or three children with with my father. And so the problems that I was helping them address were were not necessarily dealing with how to, you know, get pregnant, whether it's fertility or how to deliver, but rather how do we begin to help patients enter the next phase of life comfortably and still able to connect with their partners. And, you know, I've been in, the Beverly Hills area at Cedars. I I've been in La Jolla, San Diego, and, and the demographic I I'm out here and and working in, in my hometown, you know, for the longest time, seem to not talk about intimacy, you know, particularly with, with some of our our patients who are traditionally more Asian culture, you know, it's always struck me as interesting because how do we, you know, start families and, and how do we attain a certain place, if not for intimacy yet, by the time most patients are 47, 48, and their bodily uh, functions begin to change, whether it's a change in their hormone or a lack of lubrication that that lends itself to to painful intimacy, Uh, all of a sudden it's not okay to talk about it. And that was one of the challenges I think of joining my father's practice was that we saw patients who wanted to have intimacy, wanted to connect with their partners, uh, but we're not comfortable enough to articulate, you know, what it is that was bothering them. And when it comes to intimacy, it's such a broad topic, broad range, that there's so many ideologies to um, issues that can arise with, with age. You know, one of the most common features we were finding were, were patients who would turn 52, 53, and almost, you know, correlated with the cessation of menses, all of a sudden their estrogen would completely uh, be eliminated from, from their system. And the natural lubrication patients to to generally have intimacy comfortably all of a sudden turned off. Not to mention all the other aspects of menopause that that women were experiencing, whether it was the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flashes, the mood changes, the brain fog. And then it was no wonder that they were no longer connecting with their partners again. And as I began to interview many of these patients, I was finding a common theme that not only were the relationships between the woman and her husband being affected, but ultimately their lack of having intimacy distilled or or rolled into their children's lives. They're finding that the, the father and the mother were no longer connecting, And that there was a certain undue pressure that the children began to face. And so that, that unit, that, that familial unit began to change and and that really had to do with, with whether partners were engaging in intimate relations or not. But again, coming from, you know, the Asian culture, we're a little bit more conservative. Um, You know, we, we never talked about it. And so I did what I, I think I do best, which is I, I took a deep dive and I, I, basically read up on every single article that I could on different components to what makes intimacy not comfortable, uh, whether it was dryness, uh, lack of certain hormones, you know, testosterone, as well as estrogen, I, I was finding in my, my reading where we also important, you know, how much collagen was within the G spot, you know, it actually led me down another journey. And when we both met Dr. Charles Runnels. And we both learned the importance of of the use of autologous platelet-rich plasma. And then finally, learning how to, you know, offer a minimally invasive surgery, a vaginoplasty that was really catered towards the patient's own, you know, needs and, and, and what their desires were and really bringing it all together. And that's where Timeless intimacy was born. It was really the understanding that every patient was different. And it may be a combination of some kind of minimally invasive procedure. Uh, Maybe it was a plasty combined with an O-shot or a plasty combined with some kind of the energy-based devices, whether it's radio frequency or laser. And then finally looking at their hormones to make sure that we were able to offer something that made the patients feel better and, and at least get their numbers in the upper range of normal so they were comfortable. You know i i was able to develop this this concept you know because i was a, a part of a, a larger program a mastermind with several other physicians and i, I think we teach each other the best when we are able to bring each other ideas that were already in our head and and so it was out of a mastermind group um, that i did with, with dr runnels that, that i actually came up with with timeless intimacy and it's 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 been registered as a as a trademark now and i've been defending it uh, for almost two years and you know, it has its own marketing collateral. Um, it has its own kinds of informational pamphlets that allow the patients to understand the different components. And, and really is just a great way to educate patients and, and break down the, the, the different components to, to what makes
0: int- intimacy comfortable. So, and it's certainly sounds like the, the timeless intimacy is, is an overall picture, an overall look on how to better help a woman. Uh, Steer herself through chapter two of her life, and, and because, and what I mean by that, you, you talked about minimally invasive surgery, you talked about technology in the realm of lasers and hormones and G-spot amplification using P, uh, PRP. So, when a patient comes to see you, is she coming in asking you, "Hey, I've heard about your timeless intimacy," or? is this something as you're discussing with her in your consultation and you realize that not only is she suffering from vaginal dryness, but there's obviously hormonal deficiencies and imbalance that are occurring. Um, how do you approach that patient and, and, and how do you take it from there? I, I
1: generally have two groups of patients and, and each one of um, these groups come down their own social media funnel. And I'm happy to, to talk about that too for, for members of the audience to understand how we try to educate patients online. But in the first group or the first, first cohort, these are patients who are late, you know, up late at night, looking for treatments for menopause, you know, whether it's hot flashes, you know, painful intimacy, um, they might recognize that as they get older, this first group of patients that hormone replacement might be a possibility, but you and I both know, depending on what the patient's preconceived notions are of hormones, you know, they might not necessarily uh, jump to that right away, but, but they generally find me through that, uh, first, you know, I want to call it social media funnel, um, because, you know, we do have our own podcast. I'm, I'm continuously trying to put out content at all time. And luckily, you know, Google recognizes all of this. And because I'm one of the few physicians in our area um, talking about this in, in such a public way, uh, most patients who, who are looking for us will, will find our website. So that's group one. In, in the second group, I would call it my more classically urogynecologic group. These are patients who are coming in who have uterovaginal prolapse. Now I wish they would just come out and say they have uterovaginal vaginal prolapse, they, they don't. They, they, they usually say that they feel bulge down below or it's uncomfortable to have intimacy and, and there's there's a ball there, or they have yearning incontinence. So they find me through that way, uh, again, through a different part of the funnel, but they both land on the same page. And because I have this complete offering to be able to treat all the different components that can cause intimacy to either be uncomfortable or painful, that's usually how they find timeless intimacy and that they find our, our practice, Timeless Health MD. And all this was designed um, with with purpose in mind, because I, I wanted all of these terms uh, to really bring patients
0: down their information journey in a non judgmental way. I love that. You know, one of the things you and I talked about was, as a gynecologist, we're probably out of all the subspecialties of medicine the the best equipped um, with the most knowledge and training to help our patients, especially in the intimate world whether it's vaginal surgery, lasers, hormones. Um, we've had all those trainings, but we, you and I took it a step further because I don't know about you, but I felt when I was training, hormone therapy was there. It was taught, but it was taught at a very basic level, I would say. And even our colleagues today in the community, if they get one of our pellet patients who come to their office and they draw a hormone panel, they'll call me and say, Oh my God, what are you doing to this patient? And there's this, there's this really fear of optimizing people's hormone levels to really where they should be. And I always tell patients, if I could do it my way at the age of 30, every single one of my patients would get a baseline hormone panel Mm -hmm. and we would keep it in their chart, put it away and when they hit perimenopause or menopause, we would use that as our baseline. Yes, because, I love right? it. Exactly. That's, the, that's the way medicine should be. So mm-hmm. let's, let's get right into it. Let's sure. talk about hormones. You know, traditionally, if our patients go and see Mrs. Jones down the street, she's going to get estrogen and a progesterone if she has a uterus. Correct. How do you defer? I mean, what do you, what's your protocol and how do you approach these patients when it comes to hormone therapy?
1: I think to your point, you know, hormones can be a little bit controversial depending on who you see them for and and the patient's prior conceptions and, and beliefs. I try to create a construct and explain to the patients that depending on where they are in life, you know, the hormones actually fall in order. So starting in your early forties, if, if not late thirties, the first hormone to fall, which we almost never talk about with women is testosterone. And so, you know, that, that simple education piece or understanding is so powerful because most patients who are female will say, wait, wait, that's the male hormone. And, and just a quick, simple explanation that in fact, testosterone is made by the ovaries and then converted to estrogen usually is enough to, to have a aha moment We're like, oh, I didn't know that. And then oh, I, we- I, start, I start going over the, you know, I, I call testosterone to get up and go hormone, right? It's responsible for libido, energy, you know, and and, and I usually fall with the, with a the corollary and I ask the patients, you know, how, how they felt when they're 21. And most women would say, I, I felt vibrant. I felt sexy. Libido was there. I, you know, I, it seems like, you know, I had energy for days and, and I would tell the patient, well, did you know that was probably when your total testosterone was the absolute highest? Did you feel manlike at all? Did you have any signs and symptoms of, of being a male? And, and most patients would say no. Um, the second hormone I, I tell patients, and I see a lot of this, is, is for irregular reading, which I'm sure you do too, is pe- progesterone. Progesterone uh, in the early 40s starts to act erratically because the ovaries are no longer releasing eggs at the cadence they once did, you know, every 28 days. And so now progesterone levels are, are all over the place. And so this may result in mood changes, issues with sleep, abnormal bleeding. And so patients who present with that in their mid 40s, have a different set of issues, which is why sometimes, you know, again, to your point, depending on who you see, a little bit of estrogen, some progesterone in the form of a a low dose birth control pill can can solve these issues, but it doesn't increase libido. doesn't help with energy. Um, And the last and final hormone that I try to tell our patients is by the time they're 51 and a half, this average age of menopause in the United States, you see a decline in estradiol levels. But if you follow the patients to your point, by then, if you've done nothing and addressed it, it's almost too late. That would mean there's a good at least 10 to 12 years of changes that are going on the body in which the ovaries are beginning to give out and not producing the same levels of hormones that they used to produce. And the patient undergoes the aging process. And so by the time they're 52 and they need all three, the progesterone, the, the testosterone, and the estrogen, it makes sense that when you kind of give them all three all at once, you know, it takes some titration you know, to your point, I, I really like the point about you drawing that picture of the labs when they're in their thirties. So the patients have some semblance of when they might've felt best and kind of getting them to that, that place. Um, another comment I like to make is, you know, when we you know, you kind of talked about the up, you know, uh, higher normal levels, but I try to tell the patients when they're asking me about, you know, super physiologic doses or, or overdosing them with, with hormones that we're, our goal is to bring the patients that they, upper range of normal. And if that upper range of normal happens to make them happier, they're feeling better, then, then we use that to kind of dose the next round in no way are we trying to give patients supra physiologic levels that would put them at risk or danger. And no two patients are the same, you know, so when patients come in and, and we're a very referral central practice, much like yours, you know, and so someone comes in and then their sister comes in, it's, it's not you know, unusual that I'll often see another family member and they, they start swapping notes, right? It's like, oh, my sister got this dose. How come I didn't get this dose? How come she got progesterone, but I didn't. Well, no two people are, are created equal. And so I, I think, you know, when it comes to hormones, I, I think it still has to be individualized. And so the traditional way we have been taught uh, to administer hormones doesn't really leave that individual aspect to, to mind. It's, it's, you know, it's this dose or this dose, and hopefully the insurance covers it, right? But that's a whole other topic.
0: Yeah, that's a whole other topic. You know, I started doing pellets in 2005. Can you believe it? It's wow. Been that, it's been that long. But to the point. So the way we do it is everybody gets a, a hormone panel prior to us doing any hormone therapy. We do a lot of creams and as well as a, a lot of pellets. Do you guys do a follow-up
1: blood test? We do. And and so you know within four to six weeks, and and by the way, I, I didn't think I was gonna start treating men too. But eventually, you know, the men started coming, the husbands. So so I also treat men. Um, But within about four to six weeks, you know, now that we have a a trough or the lowest level, we also want to peak. So we kind of get patients uh, four to six weeks to make sure and and ensure that the pellet took correctly, that it's releasing uh, in the range we would like it to be. Um, And then we essentially follow the patients throughout the rest of the year, just clinically, you know, other than abnormal bleeding and maybe adjusting the progesterone in scanning the patient with a pelvic ultrasound to look what the uterine lining thickness is, you know, there's very little maintenance um, until you know they've hit a different milestone in their life. And, and the most common kind of change in milestone is if a patient was, say, perimenopausal. Uh, when they met me and I was adjusting their testosterone, progesterone, and then all of a sudden their FSH, the, the follicle stimulating hormone uh, begins to climb. You know, I usually know when a patient is formally in menopause if the FSH is, is more than 50 and they've not had a period for a year, then of course I would maybe adjust their hormones by drawing labs and then adding estrogen. Uh, but other than that, you know, they, they generally come back with, with a pellet uh, um, a dose within a, a certain range. Um, you know, I have a computer algorithm that, that we use and in, in our practice, a dashboard that helps standardize, you know, how we administer the, the, the pellets. Um, but that being said, you know, you could also follow the patients clinically um, and then know that it lasts about three, four months at a time for women and about five to six months at a time for men.
0: Um, do you have any pearls for, for how you do pellets? Yeah, great question. First of all, just like you, we if you're going to do pellets or, or really good hormone therapy, you're going to see that you have to treat the men as well, because Mm -hmm. I tell all my female patients, you're going to be so different. You're going to feel so vibrant that your husband's going to run into the office immediately and want to do the same thing because he's not going to be able to keep up with you. No, we do it the same way as you, Ed. Uh, We look at it from a blood perspective. So a blood panel is absolutely necessary, but we also take into consideration clinical symptoms because every patient is different. And so, if somebody feels good on their hormones and I feel like maybe I could go up a little bit higher based on blood work, I'm going to keep them at the same exact level because Understood. I really want to follow them and keep them comfortable. Um, as far as other things, one of the other things I've been doing a lot now is adding um, DHEA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm doing a lot of that as well as looking at their adrenals. I think that's right. really important. So I'm incorporating that into my hormone practice. And I think that really, and and, and like everything else in medicine, I say this is full circle today, but I'm sure in six months from now, there'll be another component to my hormone therapy. And that's what makes us, that's what makes medicine fun. And I think that's what makes you and I unique because we're always looking for the next best evolution to what we're doing. And and, And I love to think, and you do the same as we keep an open mind. I love change and I'm always looking for change. And I think, unfortunately for a lot of people trained strictly in Western medicine, without that open-mindedness, they they stay in this tunnel vision their entire career and they they refuse to deviate. And I think the only people who suffer are our patients. Um, But anyways, so tell me about pellets. I, I know we talk about it as if everybody knows about it, but Tell us a little bit about why pellets, in your opinion, are your go-to. So, you know, pellets are not anything new.
1: You know, when I first learned about them, I, I thought it was a, a new way to deliver medication. You know, pellet therapy has been around for decades now. And, and a pellet really is just the form of, of the medication. It's usually crushed under several um, pounds, Newton force. It's usually a powder of, of some sort. You, you have all sorts of kinds of pellets, but but the pellets that we're talking about um, today are are bioidentical plant-based pellets. You know, it could be you know where we get our, our pellets at least the, the the base is from yam, which is, which is plant, and then the yam the the you know these are created at, at special farms, the 503B compounding pharmacies um, from the crushed yam. The uh lab is able to bring out, without trying to get too technical here, an ester ring. I'm going back to our biochem days, but you know, I'm such a such a dork when it comes to this, but, but I think it's important. And from the ester ring, it really serves as a substrate that, that you could build testosterone, you could build, you know, estrogen. And you know, it's important that this build looks and functions exactly like what your own body used to make. And what I mean by that is there is a difference. In it, from a bioidentical, you know, plant-based hormones from a synthetic hormone. A synthetic hormone, you know when you think about some of the synthetic estrogens and, and progesterones that we've we both trained on, you know many of these um, molecules look very similar to estrogen, less maybe a methyl group or, or two. And so the body ends up taking it within to the receptor pocket and activates only partially the signal. And so what we're seeing is not a complete transcription of what our body was meant to experience during the activation of this signal. As you see, I tell patients that hormones are, are very smart chemical messengers that are created in small aliquots as the body needs. Now, the entire way that this is happening, we are all as human beings fighting time because these chemical messengers begin to run out and they actually slow down and it's, it's production, you know, from testes as men and from ovaries as women. And this process is what we call the aging process. And so it, it would make sense then as these hormones or these chemical messengers begin to decline, as does our cognitive function, our thinking function, our ability to gain lean muscle and to be active, you know, these chemical messengers tell our body what to do since we were young. And so I tell our patients there's synthetic hormones and that there's bioidentical plant-based hormones that fit right into the receptor pocket, testosterone namely, and estrogen is another one, and will transcribe the entire message all the way through. Uh, In addition to that, a synthetic hormone you would take orally, and part of the oral uh, taking of the medication gets broken up into the liver. So now you have toxic metabolites that, again, the body is not meant to see or is not seen before. And so you think about some of the issues that patients you know, allude to with, with certain kinds of blood clotting issues, DVTs, um, some of the, the breast cancers are really due to the breakdown or the side product, the byproducts of synthetic hormones, which is why the on-label recommendation really is just for short amount of time um, I think it's about six months at a time, and they're supposed to take a break, which is always really interesting. Because most of my patients will say, "And and then what, Doctor Tankshinov?" So, you know, I, I think you know this understanding of of, of a bioidentical hormone, plant based versus a synthetic hormone, uh, is important for our patients to at least consider when they're when they're looking up and and trying to educate themselves about um,
0: uh, hormone replacement. Absolutely. So, two points. One, just for the audience, when we ta- when we were referring to compounded plant-based hormones, I always get asked, well, how come not everyone or why are pharmaceutical companies or my insurance not covering this? And the answer is clear because you can't patent something that's natural. And so there's really no money for big pharma to do with, with bioidentical hormones. And that's why, you know, people like yourself and myself and so many others really have to fight the fight in order to keep patients and, other, and some of our other colleagues from really educating them so they can better understand uh, bioidentical hormones. Um, the second piece is, have you found that pellets or other hormones have the same effect on, the, on, on vaginal health? So for example, if I'm doing pellets on a female patient, there's often times where I have to use two modalities of treatment. I have to, I give them pellets or creams, and that's their systemic well-being. And then I always discuss that just because you're receiving hormones from a pellet or creams, you may still suffer from some of the atrophic changes that may happen with age. <clears throat> Are you treating patients simultaneously, both with pellets and vaginal treatments?
1: I, I am. And, you know, to your point, <coughs> the, the pellets offer, you know, full body uh, relief, you know, very good for sleep, you know, vasomotor symptoms, um, but patients are different. You know, there are some patients of mine who, you know, going back to the timeless intimacy sequence, you know, they, they start to do very well on the palates, but then what's left is they still have atrophy or discomfort with intimacy. And, and that's when we usually start talking to them about, you know, certain Uh, localized creams, you know, Prasterone is one of them uh, that is a really great insert. And and then when do we offer them a vaginal laser therapy versus an O-shot versus Prasterone? Well, it really depends on the patient, what their goals are, you know, and and like you, you know, one of the greatest advantages of, of having a comprehensive gynecologic practice is that we can offer them a little bit of everything. And we allow the patients to actually come back and talk to us about what it is that they liked, what did they want more of? You know, there's certain patients who, you know, maybe have had one or two femulith vaginal laser treatments and they do great, but then they ask, what are they gonna do for the rest of the year? And so we try to combine it with vaginal estrogen. There are some patients who have a little bit of residual urinary continence after doing a, or performing a few vaginal laser treatments on them. And so I'll offer them a laser enhanced O'Shawn on the third um, femulate to really begin to build up the collagen underneath this sub meatus. Um, and that's just around the time the palate begins to work and increase the urethral tone. And so, you know, I don't think there's a one size fits all nor is there a, you know, blanket way to approach um, your incontinence intimacy. I, I think, you know, we're in a place now where the technology medicine and our ability to offer patients customized treatment uh, really allows the patient to, to take back what's important to them and let them and their symptoms kind of guide our next steps. Um, but, but how do you approach um, your patients?
0: I mean, I, I love everything you said. And, and the fact that we our gynecologists and can offer comprehensive care gives us the ability like no other. I mean, I know you are very involved with Alma, which represents Femilift, which is a fractional CO two laser for vaginal atrophy and urinary incontinence and other good benefits. But what saddens me is when other subspecialties or non MDs are offering these lasers without quite understanding the indications and what they're doing, and they're basically treating every single patient the exact same way. And that's where they come to me for a second opinion, because they're disappointed in their treatments. Part of my treatment is educating the patients on what to expect and being realistic with them. And I think you're right. I think, look, I think everything goes hand in hand. You can't do... Vaginal estrogen replacement therapy without good systemic hormone therapy.. Agreed. You can't you you can't just do a Femi lift without making sure that your patient is optimized hormonally, because you're not giving them, you're not taking them where they could really be. And I think you're doing you're really cutting,' you're, you're, you're cutting the treatment short. And that's what makes it great for somebody like yourself, where you can really, and you said it perfectly, on your second visit, you're really hearing and listening to what the patient's telling you. And from there, you're adjusting your treatments. But you can only do that because you're so comfortable with your treatment options, because you're so versed in your treatment options, because you're educated and you understand. And you can do that because you're a gynecologist at the basic root of your training. And so the point is, I do it just like you. Um, I think it's really comprehensive. And I think, um, having the once you get into this world of anti-aging, cosmetic gynecology, intimacy, sexual medicine, and overall comprehensive gynecology, it all you start to realize your patients are going to need way more than just one type of modality of treatment. Um, On that note, you I know you love PRP as do I. So tell us about how you enhance and improve the suburethral area or, or the, the G spot and, and what you have found and how it helps your patients.
1: Absolutely. So I, I remember discovering uh, platelet-rich plasma almost um, by accident. There was a product that uh, a rep, uh, it's no longer available on the market, but uh, there was a, a product that we would use in the operating room um, to stop bleeding. Yeah, it was called Vitagel. Uh, it was made by, by Stryker as an old product. Um, but it was a combination of thrombin, and you would also have to draw some of the patient's blood and spin it. And so then you would combine them together. So you have thrombin, which helps with, with the coagulant, co- coagulation cascade and, and bleeding. And then you have the patient's platelet rich plasma. And I remember the, the rep at the time said, you know, this would be a great alternative to some of the other things you're using. I was more fascinated by what was being spun than the thrombin. And I started, again, doing the deep dive going in and learning everything I could about platelet-rich plasma. And I ended up discovering you know, the O-shot and you know, discovering Dr. Charles Runnels and his entire falling and you know, the use of the patient platelet-rich plasma, that is all of her own and his, and in some cases with the P-shot, but all of their own healing factors to help heal a different part of the body. This was my first introduction into regenerative medicine. And and I felt like the same way I felt when I was exposed to the Da Vinci robot, which was, this is amazing. Why don't all people know about this? And how are we not entering this, this new phase of medicine that we are not only using tools that now we've made to help other patients, but we are now utilizing different parts of the body on the patient themselves to help the patient heal. And so, you know, when I started looking at platelet-rich plasma and all the different healing factors, I started to understand that the body actually does have the ability to heal itself. And so by pulling out that area that the platelet-rich plasma if you go online, there, there's such a myriad of information on, on what it is. Uh, but what it is, just briefly, is is the substance that, you know, just like when you used to skid your knee when you were younger and you'd see that yellow goo come to the top and a few weeks later return into to skin. Well, that's platelet rich plasma. And so, you know, by combining that and injecting in key locations that are involved in intimacy and incontinence, uh, namely Dr. Graffenberg's spot or the G spot, we were finding that patients um, were able to, you know, have times in which they were not incontinent, you know, they're, they're leaking with a coughing lap and sneezing got better. And I didn't have to place a sling or I didn't have to insert something into them that, that was permanent. So I, it was another value add because, you know, patients wanted alternatives. And so, you know, by combining platelet-rich plasma, you know, as a gynecologist into the urogynecologic procedure, as I was already performing, I started to see that you can heal your body and the patients were using um, different parts of it to improve incontinence and, and their sexual health. So I, I don't know if you've had a similar journey in, in how you discovered PRP.
0: Yeah, so, very, so I've been using PRP now for almost five years through Dr. Reynolds. Um, you know, I forgot to mention to you earlier, you talked about the bladder sling Solix. So that, that is my go-to sling still today. Uh, Just because it's, I'm very comfortable with it. I used to actually teach for Boston Scientific with Solix. And there was a time in my career, I was doing about 15 slings a month uh, for a while. Honestly speaking, since I've really taken charge and looked at alternative methods of treatment using PRP and lasers, I honestly maybe do two to three slings a quarter. That's how sad it is, but how great it has become for our patients because we've kept them away from surgery. They're getting outstanding results. Um, and there's no side effect. I always tell patients, as a physician, there's almost no treatment I can offer you that I can confidently say has no side effects. Right? That it, It's all natural. When we do PRP in our practice, we add no additives pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I've never, I've done thousands and I've never seen a single complication. And right. and just like you, I combined PRP with almost everything today because of its improvement in blood flow to the area, which in sexual medicine is such a key factor. It's growth factors, it's regenerative factors. PRP has definitely changed the landscape of how we're treating patients from a genital, u- genital urinary Component to a sexual medicine component. I'll even add it in my labioplasties and vaginal plasties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it really makes a tremendous difference.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I have several colleagues, we have several colleagues that are not gynecologists, namely the orthopedic surgeons who utilize PRP and the joints, the hips, and, you time. know, I, for a long time. So this is not anything that's new. But rather, it's new in its application to our gynecologic field. And so, you know, I think PRP is, is just another tool in our armitarium of, of, of tools that to help patients with, with incontinence and, and sexual health. Uh, and, and, you know, that being said, having done like you many O shots and, and use a lot of platelet rich plasma, you know, it can work. Um, it does work. And this is based on having done hundreds of these procedures now it does work when the patients are also hormonally optimized. And, and I'll just yes. you know, say that again, you know, I'm, I'm finding that patients who, you know, have, have undo the, the pellet uh, program, who are eating clean, you know, who are exercising and, and really, you know, spending every energy piece of energy they can to become as healthy as they can, increase blood flow throughout their whole body. So then when we choose an area, you know, I I use platelet-rich plasma on the face as well. And in some of my facial injectables, I'm finding that, you know, the patients are healthy, they're eating well, then generally speaking, the oxygenation status, the inflammation in their body is is more optimal than a patient who's not healthy. And so you and I, you know, could really get in the weeds and, and talk about the density of platelets or how compressed or how dense the the pack platelets are, um, and, and whether that results in, in a better O-shot or a better fam- vampire facelift, which is another procedure both of us do. But really, I think at the end of the day, it has to do with the patient's own in- inflammation indices, uh, as well as their oxidation size. And, and let's be honest, that really
0: has to do with, with living a healthy and clean life. Oh, 100%. And you and I, we could do this for hours, but I don't know that the audience wants us to all in one <laughs> shot. We'll have to do it again. But I want, I want you to finish up with one thing. Sure. For your timeless intimacy, which includes so many of the, of the things that you offer in your practice and you customize them for them individually. When you see them and they've done these, how have they changed? Well, you know,
1: the most satisfying um, result I can get as, as someone who offers the procedure is when patients who are telling me that they once, you know, were at one point close, had an entire family, maybe we've delivered, you know, two or their kids between my father and I, and all of a sudden they're coming for their well woman and they're telling me, you know, and I'm asking about their family life and they're saying that they're sleeping in separate beds. For the life of me, it's very difficult to understand, particularly because you know my father and I have seen them very close having intimacy, starting a family, but but then all of a sudden they are estranged. I think it's the best word and, and they're sleeping in separate beds. And when we were able to identify a custom treatment plan for them that may involve hormone replacement, one of the energy-based devices, or if they have a significant amount of, of laxity that they can no longer have intimacy comfortably. And as a, as a plus point, if we're also able to treat the husband and they both come back and they're both saying that they are, you know, comfortable having intimacy again, they're connecting again and that their family is stronger than ever. It really represents the cornerstone of what being an ob is. And, and that to me is, is why we started Timeless Intimacy and why we would continue to offer it in its more iterative forms as, as time goes on. You know, it, it used to be for me, as you know, when I was a resident, I, I wanted to, you know, save the world one robot at a time. And, and all I could talk to you about was making the incision smaller, the belly button. But now to me, you know, having been out of a fellowship for, for several years now, you know, there is no better feeling in the world than, than reuniting a family. And mm-hmm. timeless timeless intimacy represents that. It, it, it's it's not delivering a baby, um, you know, but but it's it's really bringing the family back together. And that that to me is absolutely priceless.
0: I mean, you nailed it. This is why we love what we do. I I can't say that I've ever regretted one day choosing the path we chose. And I think the fact that you and I are so open-minded and offering such state-of-the-art procedures to getting to that process and the end goal is phenomenal. Can you tell us where everybody can find you and, and learn more about you and what you do? Absolutely. So if you want to find me on Apple
1: Podcasts, um, the name of the podcast is Timeless Intimacy. Um, There's several chapters broken up by all the different components of Timeless Intimacy. So you you don't have to listen to all of it. You maybe just dive right in and and even do the middle chapters. Um, My website is timelessmd.com. Uh, That's my cosmetic uh, guide website It has all the before and afters, our galleries and several links to all of our social media landing pages, including a a before and after gallery uh, on real self. And then our main OB page, which is just my last name, tension where you'll find, you know, stories of of all the procedures we've done patient testimonials and, and the legacy that that my father has brought uh, to our community and um, our, our work together over the last few years.
0: And you have always been an inspiration to me. I think you're one of the brightest physicians and you have such a bright future ahead of you. So I really hope everybody really checks timelessmd.com out because I know you're full, it's packed full of information. And I really thank you for your friendship and look forward to some more podcasts together. It was an honor. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Women's Health and Beyond with Dr. David Goslin. If you found this episode informative, be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to ask Dr. Goslin a question, please visit our website at www.davidgoslin.com or connect on all social media platforms at David Goslin. We'll see you next week for another episode.